because of the information discussed and provided in the accompanying podcasts, is prepared for a general audience. Without investigation into the facts of each particular case, it is not legal advice. Tammy Gaw does not have a lawyer-client relationship with any listeners. The thoughts and commentary about the law contained on this podcast is provided as a service to the community and does not constitute solicitation or provision of legal advice. Hello, and thank you for joining us on the Business Advantage Presents AT Law with Tammy Gaw. We're doing a bonus episode today regarding the case that's happening in the University of Maryland. Tammy and I felt that this was important to discuss as it's right in line with all of the topics that we're going to be discussing all season. In approaching this episode, we want to reserve judgment as all the facts of the case are not known. We're not here to point fingers or place judgment. Instead, we will look at various details coming out of the case and determine what can be done to prevent this from continuing to occur and how you as an athletic trainer can apply various details to your line of work. Let's start by looking at what we know about the case. On May 29, 2018, 19-year-old redshirt freshman Jordan McNair was participating in a team workout. The workout was the first one with the team for Jordan since April 26th. The workout began at 4.15 p.m. It was 80 degrees out with about 70% humidity. Supervising the practice was head strength and conditioning coach Rick Court, head athletic trainer Wes Robinson, and head coach DJ Durkin. The practice reportedly started with 15 to 20 minutes of dynamic warm-up, followed by baseline conditioning activity, which included 10 repetitions of 110-yard sprints. This would have begun somewhere around 4.30 p.m. At 4.55 p.m., Jordan started showing signs of distress, struggling to complete his 10th repetition. This is where it is reportedly heard that head athletic trainer Wes Robinson yells, quote, drag his ass across the field. According to the hospital medical records, Jordan apparently suffered a seizure at 5 p.m. At no point before or during the external review did a student athlete, athletic trainer, or coach report seeing that seizure, though. Between 5 p.m. and 5.57 p.m., McNair is reported as being, quote, agitated and breathing differently, and the athletic trainers notice McNair having trouble recovering. They begin supporting an active recovery and providing care. He is taken to the athletic training room for further observation and treatment. At this point, his temperature is never taken, and he is never immersed in cold water. The heat illness that he was reportedly experiencing was never properly identified or treated. At 5.57, a 911 call was made. At 6.02 p.m., responders arrive. At 6.07, McNair suffers a seizure. McNair was admitted to the hospital at 6.36 p.m. with a recorded internal temperature of 106 degrees. He is then immersed in cold water by the hospital staff. Later that night, he is transferred to nearby University of Maryland Medical Center's Shock Trauma Center in Baltimore. On June 5th, 
It is revealed that McNair had a liver transplant and is expected to have a long hospital stay and recovery. On June 13th, Jordan McNair passes away in the hospital. Tammy, what do you want to share here? Well, first and foremost, this is a horrific tragedy. And our thoughts are with Jordan's family and friends. Absolutely. Second, you're correct. We don't know all the details of the situation beyond what has been widely reported. And the investigations are still ongoing. That said, we can talk about the general legal issues around this case that are applicable to all athletic trainers in a variety of different situations. This is unfortunately a perfect time to talk about what you and I have already discussed on the podcast and that listeners will hear more about in future episodes, and that is a duty of care and putting into place procedures that are followed without fail to protect your athletes as well as to protect yourself and your institution. Absolutely. Jumping into one of the first news articles that I saw in researching this is that the university went ahead and accepted legal and moral responsibility for the case. Can you explain to us what does that mean to accept legal and moral responsibility? Well, in a case like this, uh, it probably means lawyers shaking their heads, screaming, what are you doing? (laughs) Um, Because... The investigations are still ongoing. There are a lot of allegations that have been made in the press. Um, You know, we've already cited a Baltimore Sun article. There's the Washington Post, the um, Sports Illustrated, ESPN magazine have all done pieces on this with certain corroborating uh, stories. Mm -hmm. But the final uh, report is not, has not been issued. And that is important. We are not here, as you said, pointing any fingers. Mm -hmm. Um, We're using this as an example to talk about, you know, scenarios in which athletic trainers need to protect their athletes and protect themselves. Mm -hmm. So when you say moral responsibility, that's accepting blame. So that's, Hmm. that is taking responsibility for how you feel you should have. That's kind of a, my bad, mea culpa kind of thing. Yeah, it's a subjective internal internal situation, I okay. think would be one way to say it. Whereas legal responsibility could be described as being, you are legally responsible for a behavior event when the legal system via, whether it's a court, a contract, something like that could penalize you for your actions. Okay. Um, that can be, there can be many variables. There could be criminal versus civil. Um, if you're a manufacturer of something, uh, you could be legally responsible if it breaks and hurts someone. Mm-hmm. There can be a duty of care issue, which, you know, athletic trainers are, are well familiar with that. Issues of negligence, different kinds of liability, lots of legal terms mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, no one wants to sit their first year of torts again. <laughs> um, but I will say that given Jordan's family already has an attorney, um, I thought that was an unusual thing for officials to say at this point in the investigation. Interesting. So then... In, in that same uh, kind of article that, that we were talking about, and that was an ESPN article in regards to them accepting legal and moral responsibility, it also says that they are going to be moving forward with accepting a settlement, which I think uh, we've seen in cases that we've already talked about on the podcast and that we will continue to talk about. So I'm actually glad I'm asking you this question. What does it mean to accept a settlement in a case? Well, the simple way to describe it is when you're settling a case, it means you're ending a dispute before the start of a trial or could be to end a trial, you know, to end a proceeding in a trial. Cases can take years 
-hmm. and they can be very expensive, both to bring and to defend. Mm -hmm. And a settlement could be in the interest of one or both parties. So the a defendant could offer a plaintiff a certain amount of money to settle and waive future rights to claims. Mm -hmm. And so that can be something that could happen to just save both parties money. So it's kind um, of just like offering a sum of money to 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 accept not moving on. Yeah, it's it civilly it's kind of like and this is way simplifying it. Mm-hmm. But if you think of it in law and order terms, it's essentially the civil version of a plea agreement. Okay. Where both sides agree that this is what is going to this is what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I will pay you this amount of money and you can and you will agree to not bring any future cases. And and so what's the, what's the me. benefit of that? Well, it's cost is a huge benefit. It mm-hmm. frequently happens to minimize cost because mm-hmm. attorneys are expensive. Mm-hmm. The and like I just said the cases can go for years because mm-hmm. they can get just dragged through the courts. Mm-hmm. Um but uh and if you're in a jury verdict situation where a jury could decide potentially a worse settlement, mm. defendants sometimes will say, well, we're not going to take our chances with this. We're, we'll settle. Mm. Uh, we'll settle before we potentially get worse news. So mm. it's a, you know, it's a, it's a strategic gamble. Mm-hmm. But one of the other things, and we do see this sometimes, we've seen it in some NCAA cases as well, settlements can be reached because one party doesn't want to go through discovery. And Hmm. discovery, for those who don't know, is when both parties obtain evidence from the other in a lawsuit. So these can be depositions, requests for productions of documents, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. When you're, you know, I want to see all of the text messages, for instance. Mm -hmm. Sounds kind of familiar with another recent issue at uh, Ohio Mm -hmm. State University. If Mm -hmm. you're talking about, I want to see these text messages, and maybe in a scenario, somebody doesn't want you to see all those text messages. So you... No, God. Um, so when you say discovery, it's not necessarily what the public might find out, not necessarily what we as the lay people might quote unquote discover. It's more of what each party might discover about the other. Well, it's both because okay. initially it would be what both sides discover about each other. Mm-hmm. But if there is no reason to keep those court records sealed, then that kind of information public. can be made can be made public and can mm-hmm. be de- can be mm-hmm. discovered. And so uh, sometimes you settle a case because it's another calculated, you know, a strategic mm-hmm. decision that you would rather pay the money than have certain information be made public. And that mm. is very, very, very simplified version of it. Sure. But when you talk about a settlement, there are a variety of different reasons. I see. Different reasons to do it. Sometimes it can be, and I'm not saying that this is this is not, you know, directly associated with this, mm-hmm. but sometimes if a defendant really believes that they were culpable or to blame. They just believe it's right to mm, uh, pay money. money. To, mm, yeah. I see what you're saying. Or make a change. Uh, car dealers do it or uh, car manufacturers do mm-hmm. it all the time. You know, you, you, they'll, they'll settle something, but also make changes to an engine component or something that's not working correctly. So, right. I do believe that cases that we're going to examine deeper into um, this season are going to demonstrate examples of that where not only did was a settlement involved, but then the defendant had chosen to changes on their side as well to ensure that, um, I'm not recalling the exact details, but whatever it was that led to that issue to try to have that not happen again. 
Well, I think in, a, in one of the uh, future episodes that we've already recorded, um, mm-hmm. there was a state high school association mm-hmm. that, as part of the settlement, agreed to make changes in Correct. their administrative protocol. That, yes. Yeah, that would, be, that would be part of a settlement. And one of the things about settlements is they are frequently made confidential. And so you can lock up all the information. People can't talk about it. You know, there's non-disclosure agreements, all of those different Interesting. All of those different deals. Does yeah. can so that non-disclosure also be, include the 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 total amount? Like we people would never know yeah. what it would take. Absolutely. Hmm. Absolutely. So, so it's that, a way to kind of d- deal with things a little bit more quietly, discreetly, um, but also kind of helps it go away. Yes, that's exactly hmm. that's exactly what hmm. it is. Okay. ESPN reported detailing allegations of verbal abuse, bullying, and a general disregard for the players' well-being that centered on court and were enabled by head coach DJ Durkin. Tammy, I'm interested in hearing your input on what you feel this aspect has on the the total case, um, or if you have anything that you feel like these details shed any light on? Well, I think what people, if anyone who's been following it um, has seen a rampant uptick in articles that have been written about the danger that college football players are in with related to heat illnesses and how how many of them have passed away for, from non-traumatic injuries, which are, you know, mostly heat related, yes. heat related illnesses. Um, there was, I encourage people to look at, uh, on, I believe it was, a, an August 19th article, um, in the guardian, uh, by Patrick Ruby. And he actually, uh, interviewed my old ath- head athletic trainer at the university of Oklahoma, Scott Anderson hmm. came in, um, my last year. And personally, I wish I could have had more years with him. He's one of the best in the business, and I have no problem saying that out loud. So he um, he spoke with Patrick at length, and one of the things that he discussed, he's been doing some research on this and uh, non-traumatic deaths in, in college football players, but one of the things that he brought up is what he refers to as the junction boys syndrome, mm. and it's a reference to um, a preseason training camp held by Bear Bryant back in the mid-50s. So in Alabama. And featured, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Um, and all over the South, this was a fairly prevalent uh, conditioning mm-hmm. that featured, you know, it was, um, in fact, I'll read straight from the article because I okay. think it's, it, it really says it all, featured scorching temperatures, punishing day-long practices, and no water breaks. Mm-hmm. Now, nowadays, we're thinking, well, that's just bananas. Mm-hmm. Why would Why would that why would that be the case? Mm-hmm. But that was, I mean, they, they made a, uh, the whole thing was, they turned it into a book and then later on into a movie. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, there is a, there is a discussion being now had in public that I think we all agree is well past time discussing this idea of the junction boy syndrome and, you know, what it really, what it really looks like when coaches and strength coaches are given latitude to put kids and they are kids mm-hmm. through punishing drills that don't serve a purpose and are dangerous at their very core. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, 
my, my phrase for it is lethal masculinity because <laughs> a lot of the language they use, and I've seen it and I've heard it. I mean, I've been in those locker rooms. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it is sexist. It is misogynist. Mm-hmm. It is homophobic. Mm-hmm. It is fraternity hazing on an entirely different level. Mm. And so I think what one of the silver linings, if one can even call a silver lining out of a tragedy like this, is that I think the legacy one of Jordan's legacies is going to be that this discussion has reached a breaking point. And it's about high time for people to start realizing that these unchecked off-season coaching drills and workouts are arcane and should be, we'll say reevaluated. We could also say cut out entirely because cross-country runners in Arizona can practice, you know, they can run 10 miles Mm -hmm. in Arizona heat. And they're not dropping like flies. Mm-hmm. This is not this is not a a strength or a failure of masculinity mm-hmm. or whatever people decide to say. So mm-hmm. I think that that is one of the things that I am cautiously optimistic about is that this idea of you know what you could call the junction boy syndrome and this this toxic masculinity with respect to abusing these kids. I tend to agree with you. I feel like there is a cultural shift. It feels like the conversation this time around is different. And I, like you said, I'm cautiously optimistic, but optimistic nonetheless, that perhaps this is the one that will put the entire conversation over the edge. I, I hope so. I would like that to be Jordan's legacy. I would like that to be one of his legacies. With respect to that, you live in Washington, D.C., the greater Maryland area what kind of reactions are you seeing or hearing? I'm, I'm interested in hearing what kind of impact that you also think that this will have on collegiate athletics moving forward. Well, I'll be honest, people are angry, um, mm. and, and they should be. But this, is, this was a hometown kid with his whole life ahead of him. Yeah. And, and it happened at a time where several NCAA programs are under fire for various reasons. Yep. Um, Michigan State goes without saying. There is... You know, a lot of attention being paid to the travesty of oversight at that school. We saw this week how Ohio State, and I'll use the word, quote, resolved uh, <laughs> the uh, issue of domestic violence on their staff right. um, with a wrist slap. That is being very poorly received. UNC is suspending kids for selling their own shoes, another ridiculous, quote, violation. Mm-hmm. Um and not to mention the much-anticipated uh, Alston case versus the NCAA that's kicking off in two weeks. Uh, it'll be two weeks from the time of recording in Oakland. Mm-hmm. That's more of a business case uh, discussing compensation to students. But it all it all feeds together because within that argument, or within that case, is the argument the players are employees. Yep. And if that's correct, and I believe that it is, mm-hmm. and if athletes had a union or an organization that advocated for their rights, would the kind of behavior that's alleged in the Maryland case be tolerated? I've commented previously on how sports law is really an amalgamation of various areas of law that happen to apply to sports. And labor and employment is one of those areas. You know, it's really interesting that you say that because um, I don't want to tease the listeners by continuing to say this, but in a future episode, we are covering heat illness Uh, And it'll be a couple episodes away in preventable conditions. But in the research that I did for that podcast, one of the things I found was that uh, in the state of California specifically, 
for employees and employers under labor unions and uh, employment law, there is a requirement of what they consider, quote unquote, cool down periods for a worker who either is working in an, an, an overheated area. So maybe it's industrial or something to that effect, or if it's an outdoor worker that they are permitted 15 minutes of cool down time per every section or allotment of time that they're spending in that other area. And if I'm absolutely honest, it blew my mind that there was structured and regimented quote unquote cool down times that were built in for people that probably weren't even working as hard as what we see in athletics. And the fact that we as a medical professional have to be there to fight for them to be able to drink some water or sit down in the shade. I was totally taken aback by the fact that these athletes don't even have the same rights as an employee. That's that's incredible. I <laughs> Yeah. It it is the the idea, the, the little concept that gets bantered about about whether we should pay athletes. There are mm-hmm. a lot of people that have feelings on that, mm-hmm. um, on both sides. Um, but that's not what is at the root of this. No. This is a situation where kids are being exploited without any benefit or ability to advocate for themselves. Mm-hmm. And it, it should be infuriating. I am happy that you're infuriated. Welcome to the party. Yeah. Let's go. I, will, yeah. I want more people to be infuriated because there's this facade of beauty that goes around college athletics that looks real nice and shiny with, you know, brand new uniforms and corporate logos mm-hmm. and TV times and bowl games and March mm-hmm. Madness and all of that. But there, it is it is well past time for the curtain to be blown back and see who is really running this mm-hmm. and what kind of danger we are putting kids in yeah. with uh, just without a structure to be able to save them. Mm-hmm. And athletic trainers are, I've said it before, I will say it again, we will say it all the time, I will say it in my raspy voice that has a cold, <laughs> it is our duty not just our legal duty, it is our moral, ethical, professional duty to stand up for these athletes Mm -hmm. and to stand up for their safety. And that's why I'm so glad that we decided to do this Mm -hmm. as just sort of a spontaneous podcast, because Mm -hmm. I want athletic trainers to be shaken and and realize and reevaluate how vital they are in this discussion Mm -hmm. about athlete safety and not just in name only because this what we saw in Maryland knowing that we don't know all the details yet but what we do know and what has been corroborated is a tragic tragic failure yeah um you know if the allegations of the verbal and physical abuse are proven out and this is not a legal perspective mm-hmm. this is my own personal i have no problem saying this mm-hmm. i don't see how durkin keeps his job yeah um, I just, I, the buck has to stop somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I have serious objections. Anyone that checked in my Twitter account, there were various things in capital letters. I have serious objections to how the strength and conditioning coach was allowed to walk out of the door with $300,000 because 
everything that we've read indicated that he is at the very least culpable in this mistreatment. And given that the investigation is not complete and the report released, I personally, from just a someone who has worked in sports for 25 years, I don't understand how he got paid. Um, Pete Thamel has a quote. Um, he, he's got a source that said that his Rick Court settlement with Maryland is a lump sum of 315000 which is two-thirds of what he was due for the remainder of his contract. My goodness. Even if even if he got three hundred and fifteen dollars, right? Like I don't, I don't, I don't understand that. Right. Um, That's there's absurd. yeah. There's languages about whether there was a mutual release of claims between him and the university. I don't know whether that's true or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, just a general definition for folks on mutual. Release I was just going to ask so if that was a true statement. Yeah. What does a mutual release of claims mean for? Maryland, what does that mean for this coach? What does that indicate? Well, when you when you mutually release claims, it's basically saying and agreeing that neither party will institute any legal action against the other party. And wow. so it everyone waves and releases the other from claims that it would have or will have against any other persons or entities. Hmm. Um, you know, that kind of that kind of situation. So it's it it limits the university's ability to go back after him. And again, I don't have any, that, that was reported um, by several news sources, mm-hmm. um, but that disturbs me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, and we so often see strain the conditioning coaches treated differently than athletic trainers. A lot of the conversation I'll see like in social media, for example, is uh, maybe a job posting for a strength and conditioning coach, or we find out from, you know, just the release of salaries, how much strength and conditioning coaches are making. Uh, And a lot of athletic trainers have some serious issue uh, with how much those salaries can be. I mean, I have seen them in the hundreds of thousands. And if you're saying that 315,000 was two thirds of what he was due, then Obviously, we know that it's in the hundreds of thousands. Um, You know, so my question would be, how do you see the way that Rick Court is being treated? How do you see that playing out differently for the athletic trainers? Because I feel like with kind of the general public not really having an idea of what our profession is, um, there's a strong possibility that this case alone could negatively affect the quote unquote trainers, <laughs> which I've seen referred to often. And I'm sure you'll have a comment about, um, <laughs> I mean, do you think that we have an even greater uphill battle as the results of this case? Like, do you think that athletic trainers are being drugged through the mud on this, especially when you're saying, you know, this guy basically just resigned and walked away with 300,000. Why can't the athletic trainer do that? Well, my for the record, my problem is with anybody. Well, absolutely, yes. With anything for this, it's sure. not just specifically directed at him. But um, yeah, if 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 this were on video, there would be the little sign above my head that says "rant incoming." Mm-hmm. But you know, one of the things that jumped out initially, and I've seen it. You know, never read the comment sections, 
but uh, you know, on Twitter and in some of the, the public discussion, even with reporters who I believe know better than to conflate these two, mm. but I see the issue that they don't understand athletic trainers being conflated with personal trainers. Yeah. So when they're saying things like the training staff failed, mm-hmm. it isn't at all clear that a strength coach, a position that should in no circumstances have any say in the medical decision-making hierarchy. Mm-hmm. It's no, there's no indication that the strength coach is not the medical staff mm-hmm. or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know many athletic trainers have been pushing for a name change for decades. Mm-hmm. And what we're seeing right now is how the publicity is reflecting badly on entire our entire profession. Yeah. And it, it does. It brings up the disparity in salaries mm-hmm. between licensed medical professionals mm-hmm. and weight room coaches. Right. And there are, I've worked with some wonderful strength and conditioning coaches. Mm-hmm. There are, they are very, very talented. Many athletic trainers are also certified strength and conditioning coaches, which I think is a wonderful combination. Yeah. I would love to see them leverage for salaries, mm-hmm. but strength and conditioning coaches often come in with head coaches. When a head yes. coaching switch comes on, they get brought in uh, they're their boys. That's yes. what happens. But there are strength and conditioning coaches. It is not uncommon for strength and conditioning coaches in the NCAA in major programs to make over $400,000 wow. a year. Wow. It's just, it is, yes. And so when we're talking about places, and now, of course, this is, we're talking more in the, in the college arena. Mm-hmm. High school, obviously, there's no strength and conditioning coach making a quarter mil. No. <laughs> um, but it trickles down if you can't even get... If, if college athletic trainers who are board certified have virtually all of them have master's degrees, mm-hmm. some of them have you know doctorates, mm-hmm. hundreds and thousands of hours of contact, mm-hmm. relationship with the athletes, understanding what they're looking at in a different way that is not just, you know, get your ass over the line, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. The, the fact that there is some debate about the value of athletic trainers as a profession mm-hmm. is just anathema to me. Mm-hmm. I don't understand it. And I think this is another good time. And I would love to see the NATA advocate, you know, kind of take advantage of this situation to clear up that, you know, we, we have expectations of our profession. Are we always perfect? No, there is no profession that is not going to have a failure in a situation mm-hmm. or a failure of an individual person. Mm-hmm. I mean, the athletic trainers at Michigan State, there are ones that are under scrutiny, yeah. and I have no problem with that scrutiny yeah. because we should hold ourselves to a higher standard. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we have to advocate for why we are we are qualified and deserving of, at the very least, the same standard of pay yeah. as someone who works in a weight room. Absolutely. And, you know, and strength and conditioning. And that's that sounds slightly pejorative, but I really don't I don't have any problems with that mm-hmm. because we we are qualified medical professionals mm-hmm. and they are not. I I couldn't agree with you more. And I will say that in my own experience, I'm having our clients call us and say, Hey, I'm paying attention to this Maryland case and we want to make sure that we're doing everything by the book. What can we do to get the athletic trainers what they need to make sure that we are providing the resources necessary to prevent a situation like this? And if I'm honest, I feel like it has allowed us to have conversations with our school districts about prioritizing the purchase of a tub for dunking or a rectal thermometer. And 
I'm hopeful that other athletic trainers around the country are experiencing similar positive conversations in their settings. And I do also agree with you that I hope our association that is responsible for representing us takes this as an opportunity to kind of do a PSA or some type of um, public announcement about despite a few people potentially making poor decisions, it is not a reflection on the entire profession. So I, I do have one final question before we kind of wrap this up, and it's in regards to another part of this case that has come to light, which is that it was reported by the Washington Post about a year ago that a proposal was made to the president of the University of Maryland to switch the athletic training room, including the supervision of the athletic trainer over to what's being referred to as the medical model, which would have effectively put the head athletic trainer under the supervision of a physician instead of the athletic director. The plan was vetoed by the president a year ago because he did not want medical personnel decisions to be made by another institution, which would have been the School of Medicine. Tammy, what impact do you feel that this information has on the case? Well, so I think what we're going to see, particularly with this Maryland case, is that kind of question about the medical model. That's certainly that coming to light that um, Kevin Anderson had suggested to Wallace Lowe that the medical team, you know, report to the UMD School of Medicine in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. That's going to be pertinent to this case hmm. because everything is going to be pertinent to it. Sure. Everything is going to be scrutinized. Every decision, no matter what kind of good faith it was made in, no matter what the reasoning is behind it, every decision is going to be scrutinized. Mm -hmm. In 2016, the NCAA created the mechanism for schools to do that right. and take the medical model into, you know, put that into play instead mm -hmm. of the athletic model. And in fact, other Big Ten schools have already moved towards that model. Mm -hmm. So there are going to be questions about why that was not done or mm -hmm. why it was decided not to be done at that point. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I do not know what Wallace Lowe's reasoning was mm -hmm. for not doing it. I mean, as you said, he reportedly rejected it because he didn't want another institution making medical personnel decisions. But I think he's going to have to defend that. And mm -hmm. uh, I, would, I would hope that this opens the door for discussions about doing that as well mm -hmm. with other schools. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So- like you've already said, regardless of who the athletic trainer answers to, at the end of the day, we have a duty of care. So perhaps the athletic trainer would have acted differently or perhaps they wouldn't have, but it remains unclear whether an independent model would have saved McNair's life, but the rejected proposal has definitely prompted more questions about how the University of Maryland administers medical services for its athletes. And I think what I hear you saying is that that is to be expected and it should be questioned. Yeah, it should be questioned. And it's, a, it's an opportunity for uh, college athletic trainers at all levels mm -hmm. to go to their administrators. I mean, they can't shut the door. I suppose they could, but I mm -hmm. wouldn't advise they shut the door on you when you walk in and say, this is happening right now in the international media. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are reports of this in England. Mm -hmm. This is this is not just a domestic small time scenario. Mm -hmm. So you walk in and go, this is being discussed at a lot of levels. 
this is what we're doing right now. This is what I recommend we go to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, use that to, again, as we've said so many times and we'll say again, demonstrate the value that you bring to this department and to the safety of your athletes mm-hmm. by showing how proactive you are in talking to the athletic directors and talking to your administrators mm-hmm. about how this works. If you work in a high school, yes, we've been talking a lot about college. You work in a high school, get your tail to your athletic director's office and say, this is what we're looking at. Mm-hmm. This this cannot happen. If you have concerns about a coach, I encourage you to look at how you can go about addressing that with them or if need be, addressing it, addressing it with the administrator. Mm-hmm. Because the safety of the athletes is paramount. Mm-hmm. And if something happens, everyone is going to get looked at Absolutely. as well they should. And yeah. so I think that's, you know, as you said, everything is going to get there. A lot of questions going to be asked. Mm-hmm. There are probably going to be more questions than answers. Mm-hmm. But this is a tragedy that, that something has to come out of it. Absolutely. It has to come out of it. Like, like you just said, this, this is a tragedy and unfortunately it's not the first we can hope that it will be the last. Um, but the fact is we just don't know. And so what I feel the takeaways from this message are definitely don't point fingers. And I I hope that we did that so that the audience didn't hear us saying, placing blame elsewhere, but more to look inward, to to look at your own situation and your setting. And like you just said about going and speaking with your athletic director and determining what is it that you can do today, right now, to positively affect the environment that you are currently working in, to better protect your athletes, to commit to that duty of care that we are essentially sworn in by as medical providers, and to really essentially prevent another death like this from happening. Tama, do you, do you have any recommendations here aside from what you've already said? Um, no, just to, to reemphasize that that duty of care stands outside of third-party interference. Yeah. There, is no, there is no defense of he wouldn't let me or the, mm-hmm. the coach was scaring me. It's a reality. I understand that. I empathize with it. But in a court of law, that is not going to be something upon which you want to hang your hat. So, you know, working with your coaches and your administrators to set policies and procedures is an imperative of your job as a medical professional. Mm -hmm. And if you see something that puts your athletes at risk, you have a duty to address it and you should document your concerns. Mm -hmm. It won't be, it won't be easy, but it has to happen. And I'm not being extreme when I say your athletes and your career may depend on it. I think it's really important what you just said. I I just want to emphasize it because I know that sometimes it's easy to, you know, sit in your car, wherever anybody is listening from and hear these words. And it's very different to actually act on it. Sometimes it can feel scary. It can feel like your job is at stake. Sometimes you just don't have the courage or the confidence to speak up and say something because maybe you are in an intimidating situation or you just feel like you might flat out lose your job. And I feel the need to say that If you feel that way, you should probably leave the situation. Try to get yourself out of there because it seems as though something is going to happen. And when it does, you're not going to be able to defend yourself based on what you just said, Tammy. And so I I empathize with the people who are maybe rolling their eyes or shaking their head listening to this saying, so much easier said than done. 
But the fact is what you just said, your athlete's health and safety and your career are at risk if you do not do anything. Yeah. And I will just, I'll jump in with one little other skill. Find athletic trainers and your colleagues that have been through this before. Don't don't suffer through this in a silo. If you're at a high school and you have a problem with your specific, you, you have a problem that you think needs to be addressed at your specific school, talk to another athletic trainer in that district. There, You have these colleagues. This is not a zero-sum game. Mm-hmm. We are better together. And with the amalgamation and the totality of our experience and our knowledge, in the same way that you might ask somebody, you know, somebody tells you this fancy new way to tape a wrist. You're like, oh, that kind of works. It's not, it's not the totally different here. Mm-hmm. Hey, what do you have for your cooling procedures? Mm-hmm. Put your heads together. Maybe you get a district-wide policy at the college level. Deal with it on a conference situation. Mm-hmm. But if you have, like you said, a concern and you feel like you're in a really sticky situation, get thee to a mentor or to a colleague that you can compare notes or ask for advice. And I've Don't also seen suffer that- through this. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I've seen a lot of collaboration and community happening on boards within social media where where someone will come and say, you know, I'm really struggling with this one coach or I have an athletic director that just doesn't get it. And honestly, I really don't see a lot of shaming happening in those situations. I see a lot of people coming together and saying, you know, try this or or try that and here's a tactic and here's what worked for me. But at the end of the day, if you don't feel safe and you don't feel heard yeah. and you don't feel like the impact that you're having is representative of that of a medical professional, you need to remove yourself from the situation. And moreover, I think it should be reported because someone else shouldn't just walk into that blindsided. Absolutely. Documentation, documentation, documentation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, as we've talked about and mentioned several times here, we're going to be discussing a lot of these topics in more detail, duty of care, preventable conditions, including heat illness. So continue to listen all season long to hear about how to set yourself up with best practices and stay above bar in your decision-making. Tammy, thank you again for Uh, joining us today. And I hope that our listeners have enjoyed this kind of one-off that you really felt was absolutely important to speak about. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was, it was good having a, having a talk and, and working through some of the details. Hopefully people can take some real practical steps away from this. Absolutely. 